Welcome to God is Open. I am your host, Christopher Fisher. Today on God is Open, we are going to be going over, reviewing, watching what has been described as a humorous response criticism of open theism. It's by this uh, individual, let's see what channel this is, John Crowder. And we're going to be going at this blind. I haven't watched this already, so we will be responding in real time together. And uh, we'll see what this guy says. Uh, might might prove to be interesting. Look at this guy's house. Pretty nice house he has going on here. Lord, if theology seems dismal to you, it's likely because you've only been exposed to dismal theology, which takes up most of the market. Plus, today's topic addresses a theological issue that charismatic Pentecostal types or a lot of DIY evangelicals can easily fall for if they're exposed to it, if they're not strongly bolstered in solid Christology. For decades, there has been a polarizing debate between two camps, classical theism and something called open theism. I'll define these terms if they're new to you, or you can just ignore all this and watch reruns of The Office. But folks do ask me all the time about my thoughts on open theism. I want to tell you why I dismiss the methodology of open theism hands down. I like it how uh, he's asked all the time about open theism. That is a good sign, culturally speaking. So let's see what he dismisses about open theism. But not for the reasons often put forward by mainline evangelicals who are trying to cling on to classical theism. Now, both have important things to say. But ironically, both classical and open theism are both starting from the same shared ground of Greek philosophical reasoning. They have a faulty starting point of what I just mentioned, natural theology. Neither one of them starts with Christology. So, some definitions. Let's start with classical theism. Now, classical theism deals with... You notice this dilemma he sets up. Uh, he's trying to contrast Greek philosophy with Christology, which is pretty ironic because most of the Christological debates throughout history have been rooted specifically in Neoplatonism. Uh, is God and Jesus, do they share a substance or a like substance? This is, this is not a Christian biblical debate. This is a debate about Greek metaphysics. So when we get into Christology discussions, uh, very heavily is this associated with Greek philosophy. And he, he thinks, just because he throws out this word Christology and it has the word Christ in it, now suddenly he's not talking about Greek philosophy. So I suspect, I suspect this individual, he is very heavily influenced by Greek philosophy, which he would like to think is not Greek philosophy because uh, the word has Christ in it, Christology. What we deem as traditional ideas about God's attributes. And you'll be familiar with this even if you don't know all the terms. Okay, classical theists, they think of God, his being, as a static, unchanging, unmoving perfection. Uh, one of the attributes he has is aseity, meaning God exists. In yeah, accurate. Independent.
independent in his being. He's self-sufficient. He's autonomous. He doesn't need anything or anyone. He's not dependent on the world or creation. Uh, classical theism says that he has the attribute of immutability, meaning he is unchanging, unable to change. They often say that he is impassable, that he's unable to suffer or experience emotion, pain, or pleasure. He cannot ultimately be influenced uh, from the action of any other being. He's above it all. Okay. Uh, then in classical theism, you also have all the big Greek omni-words you've probably heard before. He's omnipotent, all-powerful. He's omnipresent. He is everywhere. He's omniscient. He knows all things. Okay. So while you're seeing some truth in many of these attributes, a lot of truth, are you already noticing the Greek, pagan, philosophical, abstract reasoning I mean, this also sounds a lot like Plato's Demiurge, the great transcendent divine force. It's Aristotle's unmoved mover. These are philosophical, abstract ideas about the out there God, G-O-D. A lot of scriptural truth here, mind you, but do you notice something is missing? Now, let me ask that question another way to show what's missing. Take a listen to this. Heading in the Westminster Catechism. Now, that's a very important Protestant confession from a section titled, What is God? I think that heading itself is a bit telling, isn't it? <laughs> what is God? Yeah, that is true. It reads, God is a spirit in and of himself infinite in being, glory, blessedness, and perfection, all-sufficient, eternal, unchangeable, incomprehensible, everywhere present, almighty, knowing all things, most wise, most holy, most just, most merciful and gracious, long-suffering, and abundant in goodness and truth. Do you notice anything missing there? Where is Father? Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Now, of course, the Trinity is tucked away in the Westminster Catechism somewhere, and Protestants believe in the Trinity, but you don't see them filed away under what is God. We're going to come back to some of these things, but that's a very quick cursory summary of classical theism. Now, before I get to open theism and understand that Open theism really started with the aim of trying to bring some correction to some of those stoic, impersonal elements of classical theism. But before I get to open theism, let me first... I think he's been pretty fair. It's actually pretty good. He's pretty good at uh, defining classical theism, and that's a pretty good... That would be my preferred definition is of open theism is its response to the synthesis of Greek philosophical ideas and Christianity. And so it's it's pressing against these abstract concepts of what God must be or or uh, trying to make him uh, the most perfect being imaginable in, in such a way that there's no change and there's no complexity, things like that. So I think this guy's doing a very good job describing it. I kind of like this guy, but I also kind of don't like this guy. I don't like his speaking style where it's uh, it's very preachy, but uh, I don't know. Teach his own. Go all the way uh, to the opposite end of the spectrum to something called process theism. 
Okay, Open theism sometimes gets lumped together with process theism because they do share some similarities. But process theism is much more extreme. Process theism is at the polar opposite end of classical theism. Okay, so what is process theism? Process theism says that God... That was an interesting chart he showed. He just showed classical theism at the far end of one side, process theism at the far end of another side, and open theism lumped in the middle. I, I would say that's fairly charitable to his audience in favor of open theism because open theism is being visually presented as the rational compromise middle, which if uh, he he definitely had malicious intent, process theism and open theism would probably be lumped together at maybe the far right or the far left, depending on whatever, whichever method he wants to use. And so visually speaking, this guy is being fair as well as verbally. So far, so far, this is good what we're hearing. Is uh, He's in process, okay? He's deeply affected by the world and that the being of God grows, changes, or evolves in his interaction with the world. So rather than being the same yesterday, today, and forever, God changes. Okay, and <laughs> that was sort of about Jesus, and uh, Jesus grew old. He learned things, and uh, I don't think that means what you're trying to use it to mean in this context. That's one of the things that these people like to do is they, they grab phrases, and if the, it's like A.W. Pink, you're reading A.W. Pink's work, he'll just take biblical phrases, and then he'll put it in the middle of a paragraph about something entirely different than the context of that phrase. It gives them an aura of biblicity, biblicality, biblicality, I don't know what word we're looking for here, biblicity. Uh, but it's not from the Bible. You're just using biblical phrases to give the perception that you're you're talking about biblical concepts. But it's not. We look at the phrases in context. It looks like uh, his moral character or his status that's being talked about. Jesus's moral character or status. It's not talking about all attributes ever. It's not talking about that Jesus didn't gain from outside himself in some respect. In fact, Jesus did gain from outside himself in a lot of respects. He had a lot of uh, genuine interactions, give and take. Uh, he learned, he grew in wisdom and favor with God. This is the biblical Jesus that we are depicted. And Jesus says to his followers, if you have seen me, you've seen the Father. And those people who will want to separate Jesus from God, make God this abstract, classical being, they, they have to try to reinterpret this phrase to mean that God in no way resembles Jesus. And, uh, you, you, you know, in, wh in what way does seeing Jesus mean you've seen the Father? Well, it has to be pointers that don't actually have direct correlation because God doesn't actually have predicates. He's simple. He's unchanging. Uh, there's, there's no potentiality in him. So in no such way does Jesus represent God. Uh, but, you know, he could kind of look at Jesus and apparently there's, let's say Jesus says love. And so then God is the ultimate love, which is unchanging and ungenerated and doesn't receive from outside itself. Not even a concept of love. But uh, I, f I find that interesting. We'll, we'll see what he says. And there are tons of nuances and varieties of process theism.
Just like classical theism, you know, there are many nuanced versions. I mean, classical theists, uh, you know, that, that their belief of God's impassibility, for instance, you know, that he can't experience feeling or emotion. I mean, all, all classical theists don't believe that. So there's a gamut of nuance and variety in these different camps, okay? This is a huge subject, so I'm just summarizing. But let me just interject on this process theism idea that God changes. I mean, some would even say that in the act of creating, or even by entering the incarnation, that God somehow changed. The incarnation does not represent a change in God. God becoming flesh does not represent a change. Okay, that's an uphill battle. If uh, God becomes flesh, becoming is, is actually the verb for change. If someone's in the act of becoming, they're in the act of changing. And so this, these claims by these people are really just statements that are ludicrous on face value, but they say it with such, such belief and confidence that their audience often thinks, oh yeah, okay, becoming flesh does not mean change. Okay, got it. And that's what we're going to believe. No, but God is becoming all the time in the Bible, even God's emotions. Remember James DeWessel, he calls Norman Geisler basically an open theist because he believes in theological mutal, mutabilism, where God can be moved by his creation. That is change. Emotion is changed. When God becomes sad, when God becomes angry, when the prophets say, hey, wait till you, uh, your anger subsides before punishing me, or they say, act now when, uh, when you're angry in order to punish the enemies, they understand that God changes God's moods and emotions. God is change. Just like any person, God is a person and God responds and interacts and has genuine give and take relationships. And so I doubt the author of Hebrews in a phrase about Jesus is trying to communicate the concept that God is immutable in a phrase about Jesus. A person, a human being who grew up, had emotions, had relationships, learned, grew, cried, interacted. Uh, I, I doubt that these concepts that he's trying to talk about with immutability were present in any of the author's minds throughout the Bible. I think that's an uphill battle. Jesus is what God always was. Our only reference to the eternal logos is the incarnation. It is the goodness and other giving love of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit that conditioned his advent into humanity planned before all ages. So these these are interesting claims, these uh, Jesus claims. And uh, there's, there's a lot of people who who think that uh, Jesus is the be-all, end-all of all Christianity. But here's the thing, why what I find a little bit incredible about that claim is that uh, you have the entire Old Testament. It really doesn't mention Jesus' name whatsoever. Um, so you, you got people in the time of, let's say, King David. How are they supposed to know this theology? How is it supposed to be derived? How are they supposed to come to this man's understanding? We, we, we live on earth humankind for thousands of years without access to this information and then we're given a new testament and then now we have this information any theology that can't be derived from the bible uh, to to the audience whom it was written at that time 
and, and which looks like later additions to theology, I, I don't think you could claim that's the basis of our faith. Our basis of faith in who Yahweh is, is predicated in his actions throughout history as he's revealed to us throughout the Bible. And so to, to hinge it on the New Testament, I think is an incredible claim. I think Yahweh, his emotion, his person, his actions, they speak for themselves. Uh, people throughout uh, all of Israel's history just had to believe and call on the name of Yahweh, believe spe specific things about Yahweh and who he was. And I don't think concepts of Trinity were critical to their true practicing of the faith. I think that's a mo modern notion built up by this fake piety where it's like, oh, if we just invoke Jesus's name, now sometime, somehow we're more pious than other people who don't focus entirely on Jesus. So Greg Boyd will, will do this too. Greg Boyd is an open theist example of this methodology where he takes a Christological approach. And so you could be an open theist and have this Christological approach, and that's fine. And so this, this guy might not be familiar with Greg Boyd's Christological approach where everything's centered on Christ no matter what, and no matter how far you have to stretch it. But that is an option to open theism. It's not my preferred option because it does not make sense to me how in the history of humanity that this New Testament concept is the basis of our faith, whereas there's no there's no way to gain that. There's no direct access to that throughout the rest of history prior to the New Testament. And so I, th I think it's an incredible claim, but... Uh, if, if you think it's a valid claim, you could always take the Greg Boyd approach. He was always the Logos Incarnandus, the word to be flesh, long before he became Logos Incarnandus, the word in flesh. The second person of the Trinity... He's using Latin, so you know what he's saying is correct. Trinity ...has always looked just like Jesus and therefore just like his father from so did jesus become flesh that should be debate over or if did god become flesh if yes god changed there, there's no if thens or buts um if god became blank if god became anything god changes and so did the word become flesh it's a yes or no question and uh, the Bible, of course, and John says, yes, the word did become flesh. Eternity passed with no beginning. Also, many process theologians, they differ from classical theists uh, in saying that creation was a necessary move for God, uh, making him, in a sense, dependent on creation because he had to do it. But doesn't this make God more robotic? than even his free creatures, since it makes him bound by some obligation to create? Look, God is love. And as the early church father Athanasius said, what is a loving God to do if he sees his creation uh, in, in, in Adam's fall spiraling off into non-being? Well, because he loves, he is love, of course he will come and save us. Of course he's motivated by love to save you got to notice him weaving in uh, emotional non-arguments. If process theism was true, God is more 
robotic. Okay, that's a claim. That's not an argument. Uh, it's it might be an argument against a process theist claim that it makes God more loving, but those are subjective evaluations and not in and of themselves an argument. Not that I'm saying process theism is correct or anything or correct in their characterizations of their systems. Maybe, in fact, process theism does make God an input-output machine that must act in certain ways based on certain inputs given him. That might, in fact, be true. But that doesn't speak to the validity of process theism if, if process theism is true or false. And likewise, he is motivated by love to create, to expand the family. But love is not an abstract decree that is somehow separate from God, that forces his hand to do anything, whereby God is bound to create. No, God loves freely. He has all. So, how does God love freely if God is unchanging? If there's no change in God, how can can we define love in such a way that that uh, requires no change in one of the subjects or the primary subject that is loving how do we find define love without change right is is love an emotion is it an action is it a relationship all these things require change it requires uh process as we we would call process theism has adopted this word process. It's it's a good word for for changing events. Change process is change. Not saying open or not saying process theism is true, but love requires process. It requires relationship, interaction, and change. And so I would defy anyone who claims God is both immutable and loving to give us a definition of love that that has changelessness incorporated in it. And what they do, the classical theologians, I think Augustine does this, is basically say that God is like the form of love, uh, even though his love doesn't resemble ours in the slightest. Uh, the systematic theologies will do this as well. That, that this, is, this is how they try to get around the problem of love requiring change, is that God's love is unlike our love in any respect. It's, it's kind of like this uh, Platonic form, this changeless template in the eternal that ours are uh, distant images of. We, it, it, we, we try to meet this perfect ideal form, but we never can. But that's a platonic concept. I, I don't think it's valid. You can't have love without change. Always plan from eternity to create, to adopt, to give birth to sons and daughters. Incarnation was always his plan. But there's no need to speculate about God's purpose in creating. His will is very clear. Like John Webster said, the world was made so that Christ may be born. Jesus himself is the ultimate telos, the purpose and goal of everything, which means... So there's, there's a lot of claims, and the claims, they sound pl plausible and reasonable. The world was made so that Jesus Christ can be born. Oh, what? Ooh, that there might not be a scripture for that. In fact, uh, God contemplating destruction of the entire world and undoing His creation in Genesis six would indicate that there was that world was not created for that purpose. The cr world was created for 
God's creation, God's creative attempts, maybe perhaps God's pinnacle of creation, man, a relationship with man, which can be undone. The world can be destroyed. God can undo his creation. And to think that there was this global Christ plan from the creation of the world, that's reading into some of the texts. You might even be reading into foundation of the world, which uh, could be the flood. It could be the fall of man in Genesis 3. It could be the creation of the world, but that's a subjective evaluation of those texts. You're, you're not going to find definitive texts, even though uh, these little trite statements might sound good to a listener. Oh, that sounds pretty nice. The world was made with the intent of Jesus. Fantastic. That's that's That sounds about right, so we're going to go with it. Oh, get, who said it? Famous guy? There was like Jonathan Edwards or something. Uh, and that sounds like a famous name, so... That must be true. That guy is a smart. He can't be wrong. He's got a very smart sounding name. He's he's probably like one of those Puritan preachers with those black robes. Those guys are never wrong. And what they say is authoritative. Yeah. That'll um, buy it. It's incarnation. And that incarnation whereby we uh, are united to him was always the goal. Okay. So there's nuance in here. But furthermore, as a side note, it is beautiful that God was not forced to create. Part of the blessed scandal of grace is that we were never owed any existence. If God's unchanging, as this guy seems to believe, then how could God not be forced to create? If either God has the ability not to do things that he otherwise would do, he could change or he's pre-programmed to do everything that he must do, uh, he's forced into this never-ending cascading series of events that are practically faded. He's unchanging. And so you can't have both. You can't have an unchanging God and a non-faded universe, unless God's impotent, right? If it, maybe, maybe there's a random universe, uh, but God is uh, impotent, something like that. I don't know. But... Uh, his theology doesn't work out practically if he is affirming divine immutability. We were never owed friendship, adoption, or favor to begin with. Again, God loves freely. He was never forced to create or save. And there is rich perspective in knowing God loves us freely and has bestowed upon us that which was utterly unmerited. We are of highest worth yet only in as much as this worth has come from above, from him. Here, any sense of... Again, we just have a series of uh, unfounded claims, and claims presented as truth with, with no basis, no, no source in this argument. And so claims offered without evidence can be dismissed without evidence, but it's good to listen to what he's saying and try to process if that is a biblical saying, if it's a biblical statement. For example, did God create with the intent of Jesus? Well, in Genesis, I don't get that picture. So I, I read all of Genesis, primeval history, and I don't get that from the text. You might, you might thousands of years later in a different document, in a different book, in the New Testament, you might see someone claiming something that sounds similar to that, but that doesn't seem like the intent of Genesis. 
when I'm reading actually Genesis. So the claims are suspect. They, they sound nice and they might tickle the ears of the people listening. But uh, I, I don't see any basis of evidence for these claims. The entitlement gives way to gratitude. Any self-importance gives way to humility. Self-focus gives way to the exhilaration of turning to a higher being. The wonder that the king of all has demonstrated his servant kingdom by condescending lower than all, preparing us an eternal... So there's, there's famous preachers like Spurgeon and Sproul who will go on these little... Uh, chain of phrases that that sound nice to their listeners and they become very popular because people like listening to these types of feel-good sermons uh, that they they don't feel like they even though there's a surface illusion that there's substance there that's they, they don't they're unsourced opinion they're unsourced claims a chain of unsourced claims packaged in such a way that you know you listen to it and it's oh yeah that that's that's a that's a nice saying. Oh, whoa! Look at that. That sounds insightful. Uh, you you might get as much insight from someone uh, who is doing drugs and uh, talking to their friends around like a marijuana circle. I don't know anything about drugs, so let's assume there's something called marijuana circles where they do marijuana. I don't know. And then they they talk all high to each other. Oh yeah, what about this? Oh man, that is so insightful. But. Rational people look for evidenced claims. They don't look at the claims themselves and just try to judge them on how philosophical or intelligent those those claims sound standing alone. They, they look for an evidenced opinion, and this doesn't seem like an evidenced opinion, especially not against open theism, which uh, apparently he's trying to refute. And I haven't heard in any specific criticisms of open theism on any biblical grounds at least and uh i'm, I'm not sure i'm tracking any philosophical objective objections currently either meal and serving us with his own hands so anyways let me circle back to these two seemingly polar opposite ends classical theism and process theism okay on the one end of the spectrum uh, he's unchanging. On the other end, he changes, he evolves. And, and there's so much more here. But if I'm ever going to get to open theism, which we haven't even talked about yet, uh, it's supposed to be our topic, our main topic, I need to move on. So there is an amazing chapter in here, in this book, uh, Engaging the Doctrine of God. Uh, if you're a theology nerd, uh, you know, Bruce McCormick, uh, he's far less polemical on this subject than I am. He's probably a much nicer guy than me. Uh, but he engages the work of Karl Barth to deal wonderfully with the topic of open theism. Okay, I only bought that book for this one chapter. Okay, as for classical and process theism, this is what he writes. Both claim to know what God is before a consideration of Christology. At the point at which Christology is finally introduced, its central terms like deity, divinity, the divine nature, or person have already been filled with content. And I would say that's true. <laughs> that's, that, that is very true. 
And so my question when I'm reading the Bible is what is the Semitic concept of divinity? We don't want to go philosophize with the Greek conceptions or try to do perfect being theology, which the Hebrews probably had no concept of. When I'm, when I'm reading the Bible, I'm not seeing these concerns at the forefront of their minds. I don't think, see them tackling these issues. In fact, I, I see a very Semitic uh, very much like uh, Babylonian texts, very much like Assyrian texts. I, I see those more more ancient concerns about a deity and how deity acts and interacts with creation. And so I, th- I do think it's very much important to set aside our philosophical assumptions of these concepts that he's pulling out and then look at what they considered. And so what what does it mean when the fullness of deity dwelt bodily in Christ in Colossians. I think that's an important concept. We need to try to figure out what Paul is saying, what his position is, who he's saying it to, what their position is, and uh, try to figure out this interchange of ideas that that's going on. Who's communicating what to who in what fashion without our preconceived prejudices. I think open theism does this better than well, some, some versions of open theism do this better than a lot of classical theism who seems to be more concerned with apologetics for their particular philosophy. I don't think apologetics for philosophy is as interesting as just doing a historical study on historical ideas of theology, historical belief systems, historical religion, I, which I think is way more interesting than than philosophical studies. The result is that the content of Christology will be made to conform to a prior understanding of God. Yeah. By its very nature, then, metaphysical thinking is an exercise in abstract reasoning. Look, each side, classical and process theism, They'll start with lists of Bible verses for their support. They have their list of proof text scriptures, of course, about God not changing on the one hand or God changing where he repents or changes his mind in certain scriptures. But they're still fitting this stuff together to form a man-made concept of God. And in fact, it ends up turning our eyes away from Jesus Christ. McCormick points out that a Christological approach is an entirely radical departure, a holy... Which is funny because I think Gregory Boyd was the person who pioneered Christological approaches. He might not have been. He might have been drawing on other people's works, but uh, Gregory Boyd is an open theist and does use a Christological approach. And so if you're inclined to use this guy's mentality that the Christological approach takes precedence, open theism has been on the cutting edge, do, I, do we say cutting edge? The cutting edge of Christological scholarship. And so it's interesting. I, I don't know if he's familiar with Boyd's work on the matter. ...different way of thinking and talking about God than all of these other existing models. Christology shifts the entire paradigm from a bottom-up approach of human speculation about God to a truly top-down approach, again, of God's own self-revelation in Jesus. Jesus is the true content of what God is saying 
and who God is. So all these theisms, as different as they seem to be, are actually operating on the same faulty spectrum of philosophy, of natural theology. So you're not going to be able to make similar claims about secular scholarship who are, who are looking at ancient Israelite religion. They, they tend not to be philosophically inclined or they tend, tend to try to mitigate those prejudices to the best of their ability. And you're not going to find this, this uh, spiel against ancient Assyrian scholars or ancient Babylonian uh, experts, people who study Babylonian religion. You're not going to find these tirades again. So that's why I think open theism actually has a leg up on philosophical speculations because those people, those critical scholars, um, those who are secular, who study biblical religion, they, they speak and act more like open theism, more like open theists when describing the religion of the ancient Israelites. For example, Miriam Boyd uh, talks about, yeah, in, in fact, God does repent in the Bible. Often it is this this is just a fact of the text. Christine Hayes does the same. Uh, the, these people, they acknowledge the change in Yahweh, Yahweh's character, Yahweh's person. There's character studies by critical scholars of, of who Yahweh is and how he acts. And people who are not even sympathetic to the text. So they're not trying to force their own narrative. They, of course, they might. everyone's going to have prejudices, granted. But the people who we can most point to as neutral third parties more often align with the open theists. And I wouldn't say that it's for them it's a philosophical endeavor. right? It's, it's a historical study of a historical religion, which gives a lot of evidence to open theism being true. Now, finally, to open theism. In some senses, open theism is kind of middle in the road but between classical and process theism. Open theists will mostly not say that God changes, though some of them do. Uh, they don't all say that God had to create or that God is somehow dependent on creation. Although, in a sense, that's entirely what happens if you follow their reasoning through. Yeah, so a lot of those concerns, God's dependence on creation. Now, is that a biblical concern? What, what does God do in the Bible? That God, God enjoys our company, God uh, sings over us, God becomes angry or frustrated at his creation. There, there's some dependencies that the Bible describes of God and creation. There's some interrelatedness in which God's emotions probably hinge on the actions of his creatures. This God's dependency on the world, God has in some sense dependencies on the world. Of course, it's not like the Greek gods or certain gods in uh, the Babylonian religion where human beings are workers for, so they'll grow food for, and they'll bring that food to the deities, and the deities will eat that substance and stuff like that. So it's not those types of dependencies, but there is emotional linkages, there is emotional connections, there's emotional dependencies uh, where God can be moved by the actions of his creation. This is a central theme of the Bible. 
And uh, you, you just read the Bible. This, this is the central theme. God's attempts to reach humanity. God's attempts to create a relationship, have a relationship with this creature who continuously rejects him. It frustrates him. It makes him angry. It makes him sad. Sometimes gives him exceeding joy. This, this, is, this is the theme of the Bible. This is the story, the plot of the Bible. And so it's, it's very incredible for me to hear people who don't think that God has dependencies. That, that's a Greek concern. It's, it's not a Christian biblical concern. You're not going to find that in the Bible. But there is one big area where open theism overlaps with process theism. And that's what I want to address. Process theism says that the will of God is a work in process. Okay, It's always being adapted to, to changing circumstances that somehow lie even beyond his control. You know, one big, big thing here is that God has no divine foreknowledge. He doesn't see everything ahead of time. Now, whether this foreknowledge is something that he just doesn't have, uh, for instance, some of them will say that time itself is not an actual thing, so that God doesn't actually have the capacity to see ahead because there is no such thing as time. And so he's just moving along the timeline, figuring things out. That's what they'll say. They'll say there's no such thing as time, so God's moving along the timeline. Uh, uh, may, maybe you'll find someone who says that. That that seems like you didn't understand the time that there's time's not a thing that doesn't exist and so there's not a timeline to move along just like the rest of us and that's the dumbest version okay excuse my french but it really elevates the supposed nothingness of time over god himself where do we get in the bible like time is a thing to be created or manipulated it's not a biblical concept the bible's not a sci-fi fiction time travel anything like that we just we don't have it it's 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 not it's not a biblical concept time travel time manipulation is not a biblical concept and he's just doing this strategy where he laughs it off oh open theists ha 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 open theists they they think time is not a thing ha ha ha, ha. definitely time's a thing ha 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 Be and if you don't believe it <laughs> then then you're dumb ha ha ha, ha. Um, and so we are encountering someone who's not a rational thinker. I don't think he's, he has a cognizant response to the biblical idea that time is not a thing. It can't be manipulated. You can't travel into the past. You can't, you can't make it be yesterday. Uh, you know, you, you could, you could do things like try to reverse the course of the sun, but that's not going to roll back time. A time is not a thing. It's not manipulable. There's, there's no verse where God creates time. There's no verse where God is outside of time. You're not going to find it. You're not going to find secular scholarship of the Bible saying, oh yeah, the Hebrews believed God was timeless. No, I, you're, you're not going to find secular scholarship. You, I would be very surprised if any secular scholar exists who claimed that Israel thought God was timeless. Uh, they should probably be fired if they have a professional job because that's a ludicrous claim. So I would be really surprised if that exists. But he, he just laughs it off. Uh, he just says, uh, my opponents are dumb. Well, let me say, 
if you think time is a thing that can be manipulated, you think time travel is real, uh, you are stupid. You believe in reverse causation. Uh, it, it doesn't make logical sense, time travel. Time is not a thing, and uh, you're a certifiable moron if you think it is. Okay, but the more common idea, then you see this in open theism, is that God can know the future, but he somehow limits himself to not know everything. Like he chooses not to know stuff. Like he sticks his head in the sand like an ostrich. And he sort of uh, adapts and goes along the way, uh, letting us do what we want. And he just kind of depends, all of his actions depend on our human response, on the human response of his creatures. Uh, it's sort of like, like the old philosophical question. Can God make a rock that's too heavy for him to lift? Okay, so uh, that question, if God can make a rock too heavy to lift, is a logical problem. So is it positing the existence of a thing whose attributes are self-contradictory? And so that's actually a logical problem rather than what he's trying to set up as, uh, he's, he's setting up, up a false corollary, trying to say, hey, let, let's listen to him. If he can't make the rock, then he's not all powerful. He can't make it. But if he does make an unliftable rock, then he's no longer all-powerful either because he can't lift it. So open theism, and please forgive me, my open theistic believing brothers, but open theism loves stupid philosophical concepts like this. Either God can't know the future, or he chooses not to know the future, or there's the Marvel Comics version, which is very popular. He knows all potential futures, based on what decisions we may freely choose in life. So look at what he just did. So he, he uses the, can God make a rock so heavy can't lift, which is a logical problem if such an object can have those properties and not be a self-contradictory object, like a square circle. You know, really, if something has the properties of a square, it can't have the properties of a circle and at, at the same time be a square in the same sense and in, in the same way. And he equates that to God being able to not know the future. He, he, didn't, he, didn't even build, he didn't even attempt to build a correlation between the two concepts. And so uh, he, he, this, is, this is a pseudo-intellectual. He's not thinking about his arguments. He's not presenting his arguments in a rational fashion. And he thinks by just throwing out these terms, sounding smart and talking with confidence and his audiences and he knows it he knows people are able to be manipulated in such a way that they they flock to confidence they understand and see confidence and then they think the people know what they're talking about they're not he didn't actually build this correlation he didn't actually give a good example he just threw out something an uh, example we're all familiar with and said just said Open theism does the same thing without showing how, in what way, the two, two ideas are related. They're not. The open theism is not positing an object with self-contradictory properties. We're not doing that, and he hasn't showed that we are. If it's like the butterfly effect, the butterfly in Taipei causes the, the whirlwind to happen in Nevada or whatever. And, and so he just sort of lets us pick which way we go, and then he knows all the alternate endings ahead of time. So now look, there are different trains of camp in, in open theism. 
about whether God's will actually changes? Does he have one purpose? Does he have one will? Or does his will change based on circumstances, based on how humans choose and how they respond in life? So, for instance, he first he tries plan A, and then that doesn't work, and then he tries plan B, and, and so on. Okay, but one Yeah, so in Exodus, actually, we, we have an example of this working out where God tells Moses, you go to Israel and perform this sign. If that sign doesn't work, then try this sign. If that sign doesn't work, then try this other. It's a cascading contingency plan, and we see uh, explicit, explicit examples in the Bible of this playing out. But what these types of people, they always like to do is they like to throw out these hypotheticals. Wouldn't it be silly if God did this? Ha, 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 when there's explicit examples of that in the Bible. And this is you, you could trip up Calvinists all the time like this. They'll say, well, what if God makes a mistake? <laughs> well, what if God says he repents of his own actions twice in the Bible? Uh, what about that? And always use concrete examples of the Bible actually doing the thing that these people mock. These people mock God. Um, so I don't think that's a very good strategy in life, mocking God. Um, so use those concrete examples to counter their their attempts to laugh at their own conceived hypotheticals, which they think somehow are bad. If God repented of his own action in some way, somehow that that is terrible, and so we should all reject it because it sounds terrible and we're emotionally guided creatures. Well, yeah, God does repent of his own actions sometimes, sometimes in the Bible. Not always. But sometimes God repents of his own actions explicitly, explicitly. I repent. What do you repent of? That I've made man. God repents of his own actions. One thing is for certain, and, and, and this is across the board in open theism. One thing is for certain uh, that he doesn't know everything for certain. So let me back up now, okay, and finally give you a basic definition of open theism, at least the most commonly held view. Well, a lot of open theists will say God knows everything knowable. And so they'll say that those things that God doesn't know aren't things to be known. So God does know everything. So this is his own characterization of open theism. And here he's departing from objectivity when, when evaluating open theism. And the scenario goes like this. Since God desires for us to freely choose and reciprocate his love. So here's where he's going off the rails, and open theism enables this in many ways when open theism describes open theism like this. Uh, instead of his original definition where open theism is a response to Greek philosophical concepts, a lot of open theists will turn to this definition. Oh, because God wanted real love, uh, he made a universe in which we could freely love him, and if we didn't have the ability to freely love, then you couldn't have a genuine relationship. That, mm, I, it's, it's, it's a philosophical definition of open theism, and it doesn't fit all open theists, and not all, all open theists believe it. Uh, I don't get a sense of that in the Bible. God seems to have created the world, yeah, for a relationship, for interaction, maybe out of curiosity, seeing what his creatures do. But this philosophical definition of open theism is not universal. It's not self-evident in the Bible. It's a very philosophically orientated, and it is subject to ridicule and criticism. So pointing out that open theism is actually a response to Greek philosophical concepts such as immutability, uh, which is absolutely 
uh, devastating to God's character in the Bible, simplicity of being on outside of time, these, these non-biblical concepts, these Greek concepts that, that are provably Greek concepts that Augustine says that the Bible was absurd until I read it in light of Plotinus. The Bible was absurd. The, the Bible is absurd to these people. And so I, we should be framing ourselves as a response as pushing back against these Greek philosophical concepts rather than this weird, mushy, abstract appeal to God's reason for creation. And that it, it, it's, it's, that's, that's not the point of open theism. It's the nature and character of God. It's who God is. God is a person. God is living. God is dynamic. God can interact. God can change. God can have emotions. God can feel. God can interact with his people. God can become flesh. God can become. Become is the operative word. He doesn't believe this. He does not believe this. But what he does is he directs his criticism at a philosophical definition of open theism because that's his attack opportunity. Not these other things, not, not the text, not, not the biblical narrative in which God is striving and attempting to reach mankind. He says, what more could I have done to reach you, but uh, you would not listen? He's done everything in his power to reach man and has failed. So these overriding biblical motifs can easily be ignored because open theism set him up for an easy attack, an easy criticism. Open theism says he makes his plans for the future conditional upon our decisions. In a basic sense, God chooses not to know the future. Now, although many of them would still say he's omniscient and knowing all possible scenarios, all of the different multiverses, for instance, of how each of our individual decisions may pan out in the end, he somehow knows how every possible chain of events could pan out if Doug decides to go to the ball game instead of going to church, where he has an altar call moment and gets born again. But then his wife, Sue, could cut him off in the church parking lot because she decided of her own free will to look at his cell phone that morning and saw he had been sexting with the babysitter. But the babysitter had decided of her own free will to slash Sue's tire with her Joe Biden campaign. Where is he getting this stuff? Is this his, this is his uh, scenario he made up? Yeah, that may, did something happen to you? Should we be concerned? Do you need to talk to someone? Button pen, which she had picked up, having decided of her own free will to go to the Biden rally that morning, where she was filled with the devil, thus prohibiting Sue from blocking Doug's altar call experience at church, except. Did he write this out? Is he is he reading this? This is what you decided on for your. For your scenario? Sue was actually the bigger plan of the devil to prevent Doug's salvation, which would have been foiled, except God still doesn't know what Doug's going to do, unless he does it. Wherein God would say, I knew you'd do that, unless, of course, Doug did another thing. Like, remember his phone that morning to take an Uber to the game, thus prohibiting Sue and the devil to have their way and finding the lurid text. And Doug would go to heaven. That is, unless a butterfly in Taipei caused a rainstorm in Baton Rouge, canceling the game, 
and church and the rally, and Sue gets a knock on the door, wherein two umbrella-toting Jehovah's Witnesses convert her, and God has to start all over again. So yeah, no, you notice what he's doing here. Again, it's an emotional plea to manipulate the emotions of his audience. He's saying, this is the system that open theism proposes. See how absurd it is? Well, you know, life can seem absurd at times. <clears throat> Chains of events and cause and effect can seem absurd. Um, that doesn't speak to the truth or falsity of the belief. He He's doing this emotional manipulation. His audience is emotionally based. Most people are emotionally based. And so they're going to hear his his mocking and ridicule and think that it has substance. This guy, I don't think he's an intellectual. Uh, he, You might give the aura of intellectual, but I don't think he is. He's He's a pundit, and I, I what didn't he use the word? He he used uh, not punditry, but uh, he uh, what 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 word did he use? Not a rhetorician. Uh, he said it. He said it before. I I I think it's obvious that he's pandering to a certain class of people who are emotionally attached to what he's teaching. Okay, I'm done. Done with that. God does not actually know what Doug will choose, but he knows how all the possibilities could play. So yeah, notice also that these people, when talking about these concepts, want to use, of course, maybe a Platonistic definition of knowledge, not the, it's the non-central fallacy. Typically when I know things about the future, it's an, an educated, correct uh, evaluation of what's going to happen. And so people's actions and behavior are widely predictable, especially in mass, um, fairly reliably. I, I talk all the time about me doubling my money on predict it, predicting future free will actions of large groups of people in mass. People are widely predictable, maybe not in, in the micro level individually on all issues, but people are predictable and i can have knowledge of the future i can have knowledge of the future how much more so can god have knowledge of the future he he assumes just because he threw out this weird example with all these intricate things that now god doesn't have knowledge of what his hypothetical doug will do but really pe people are predictable but but pe people's predictability is not what's at issue. God's knowledge of future predictable actions is not at what's at issue. What's of very much interest to me is the times in the Bible that God doesn't know people's future actions, times that God is surprised, times that God has taken them back. So it, it's not a wonder that God does know people's future free will actions in the Bible. It's a wonder when he doesn't. Right, that the, the exception, the exception to the rules. Play out if they do. God does not know what we humans will freely do in the future. Philosophically, no, which means uh, possess direct knowledge of a proposition, the truth value of a proposition, whether regardless or not that tr that propositional truth value is in the future. All future events have a propositionally true or false value that God must have direct access to. And of course, in his system, it's ungenerated knowledge that doesn't come from outside of God, or else God would be gaining in knowledge. 
And so they, they couch it in terms that are favorable to them without fully explaining what they're talking about, the philosophical assumptions they're bringing into their, their discussions. If he framed the issue as he actually believed it, his audience might be a little turned off by what he actually believes about the subject. That's why it's very important for open theists to really define the debate about God's knowledge in terms of oppressing against a classical notion of ungenerated, eternal, non-discursive knowledge that doesn't come from outside of God. That's the knowledge he wants to believe in. That's the, that's, that's the Platonic notion of God where God cannot gain. God can't gain from outside himself. If he did, then he would be changing, and change is decay, and God can't have that change. So that's what we need to fight. We can't let them define the debate in terms that are favorable to them where they could shift word definitions at will. We need them to acknowledge and hold to their own beliefs. That's the first thing. Get them pinned down on what they believe so then they can defend actually what they believe and not your own belief. A lot of times uh, they'll be defending open theist, uh, theist definitions of knowledge, of omniscience, where in reality their own definition that they hold to of omniscience would be countered by their proof text endpoints. He just essentially limits himself out of love. That part's important. I'll explain how the concept of love plays in later. Of course, some would say this is a simplistic definition of open theism, maybe even a caricature. And as I've said, there are admittedly many different versions of it, but open theism quite simply questions divine foreknowledge. All right, we're going to have to stop there. You see why it's important to get a hold of the terminology, force people to own their own beliefs, and frame the discussion around their actual beliefs rather than them framing the issues in ways conducive to their own theology that then they have to actually defend what they actually believe rather than this shifting terminology. And so this guy's a good example of that, a pseudo-intellectual who, who likes to talk. He might likes to throw out little nice-sounding phrases to trick his audience. He likes to use man emotional manipulation. It doesn't actually like to make points. It uses uh, very dismissive ways of talking about concepts he doesn't like without intellectually addressing them. Oh, open theorists, some open theorists think time is not a thing. Ha, 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 how dumb. And then they laugh together and then they high five without actually trying to discuss whether ancient Israel believed time was a thing that can be created or manipulated. No evidence like that. They, they'll just dismiss opposing views out of hand. Uh, fantastic. Um, not an intellectual. He's a pundit. He's using tricks of emotional manipulation on his audience. He's, he's not addressing substance. And he's got another hour left in this video, so maybe we'll watch it, and maybe, maybe he does add some substance to what he's been discussing. But so far, I've not been too impressed. Just by that opening, though, his opening definition of open theism as pressing against Greek philosophical concepts was pretty good. But then he quickly departed from that, substituted something else, and attacked that something else, which not so good. Anyways, uh, questions or comments, if you want me to keep going on this video, if you watch this video and found a particular part that maybe he's making a cognizant argument that uh, we should actually be responding to, I'd be interested in that. Otherwise, uh, thanks for listening.